Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stammel Major. In this episode, we're continuing John Caldwell's Desperate Voyage and we're on Chapter 24. Chapter 24 Going Native. I first attended the native church on my seventh day on the island. Fijians attend church three times on Sunday early morning, afternoon, and dusk. Wednesday morning too, at dawn, is a church date. The lalo, or native ceremonial drum, calls the hour of church. I went, clad in my wrinkled blue suit, wearing socks to hide my puffed, poisoned feet. The women enter first and sing a long, mournful song for about ten minutes. They seat themselves on the floor on the left side of the room at the front. When the mournful song is finished, the men come in and sit on the right. Behind them, in neat rows, are the boys, and to the left, the girls. The natives are a beautiful sight on church day. The halo of dark, frizzy hair is combed and oiled to eye-catching perfection. Sunday best Sulus are broken out and short-sleeved, colourful shirts are worn. Where the skin shows, it is oiled with wali-wali, an aromatic coconut oil, which makes it coppery. The proceedings, despite the Fijians' natural religious seriousness, have a dash of humour. In the back of the room sits one of the church elders, glowering over the boys. He carries a thin, twenty-foot rod. Let one of the boys scant his Sabbath duty, and he is nicked sharply on the head. The little boys, in fearful fervour, bend to their songs and prayers. My throne was placed beside the pulpit, The pastor and his two assistants were last to enter. The pastor was wearing my pinstripe tan coat which he had found in the wreckage. He had offered it back, but I insisted that he keep it. It was a late collegiate cut, three buttons down the front and abbreviated lapels. The sleeves struck him well above the wristbone, and across the front it was tied with a string, since it wouldn't button around his massive chest. Services commenced with a deep-throated, fast-moving chant accompanied by the time beat on a steel triangle. A highly persuasive prayer then ensued from one of the deacons. When he finished, he mopped his tear-stained cheeks with a large white handkerchief. He prayed directly to God, and not with the honeyed words or through the ears of a fastidious parish. Another weird, thrilling song was voiced up. The other deacon, my philosopher friend, poured some of the salt of his wisdom into a very moving prayer. He too wept openly as he prayed. It was strange to see these towering, heavily muscled men weeping volubly on their knees. Another song ricocheted around the close walls and my friend the pastor advanced to the pulpit. The sermon that followed was the most convincing that I ever heard, yet I knew not a word that he spoke. He expounded the word in no uncertain terms. In thundering tones, with his great fists beating upon the pulpit, he dinned his inspired message into every rapt ear. A final song was sung and services were concluded. I took a stroll around the barren little room. The pulpit and two crude benches were its only ornamentation. It didn't even have a kerosene lamp on the ceiling. On one wall was a colourful whiskey advertisement showing a picture of a shark. The walls and floors on the inside were unpainted. Church. The church was about 12 years old, paid for by the natives from their copra gathering and built by the colonial British government. That afternoon, 
I enjoyed one of the most delightful treats of my whole stay in Fiji. Una had caught me an ugavule, pronounced ongavuli, a giant coconut crab. It was the first I had ever seen, like something out of King Kong in the miniature. Offhand, he appears to be a compromise between a crab, a lobster, and a tarantula. The width of his great claws is often more than two feet, and the plier-like, heavily toothed pincers on the end can amputate a finger. On the very stern of the Ongavuli is a fist-sized round shell, looking like a small bag. When captured, he is kept alive as a future food supply by a vine tied to this bag and suspended from a limb or the hut ceiling. Hanging thus, claws down, he is helpless. He lives by climbing palms and cutting down the nuts from which he tears away the tough fibre, somehow breaking open the tougher nut and consuming the milk and soft meat inside. The delicious white meat of the giant crab is a meal for three men. It is tastier than lobster. I often had lobster or urao as it is called, but never when I could have had giant crab. The meat is most toothsome when boiled, though the natives prefer it roasted in the shell over hot coals. The sack-like pod on the creature's back contains a rich natural sauce which seasons the soft, sweet meat. The islanders were usually kind and generous with food. Not a meal passed but that a dozen contributions came in from the fires of the surrounding huts. When the fishermen returned at night from the coral lagoon, they always brought a delicacy or two. The men who foraged each day in the jungle invariably returned with some special fruit or vegetable. Even the children at their play ran upon odd tidbits in the jungle or along the seafront and brought them timidly forth. Whatever was offered me, I ate. I never questioned the validity of a single bite. If I needed reassurance, there was plenty of it. The natives in their buoyant health were bounteous guarantors for their food. Their beautifully muscled bodies, milky teeth, perpetually pleasant dispositions, in general, their health and verve were a perfect testimonial to the fair they thrived on. I ate baked eels and raw turtle eggs with perfect aplomb, boiled octopus, fish heads and dried sea worms, no matter what, I took them all as they came. Una prepared many odd dishes for me, some of them looked mighty queer, but so long as my strength grew and the wrinkles filled out, I didn't care what she stewed up. Whatever I wished to eat, I had only to suggest, I had but to say, Kai Kai Ugavule, and Una strode off into the jungle, returning in a while with one of the giant coconut crabs. If it was eels, or I wanted turtle soup, or if it was lobster or clams, Una always took up her burlap sack and walked wordlessly off to the lagoon. If it was a fruit or vegetable from the jungle I wanted, Itchy or one of his six boys swung onto one of the narrow jungle trails and soon brought it in. On Sunday night, after my first week on the island, I began to snap out of weakness. My body began to look like what a body should look like. A padding of flesh appeared around my thighs and I could sit down on my bones without needing to support part of my weight on my hands. The cushioning effect was better for sleep too. Flesh was appearing throughout the body which, because of my seemingly large hands and feet, made me look less like a club-footed pup. The only morning, Monday, November 4th, I felt strong enough to think in terms of getting off the island and continuing my journey to Australia. I called Itchy and gave him the lowdown. I told him I wanted to get going. He looked grave and displeased, but he called a few of his neighbours to sit in on the plans. They were introduced 
but the names turned out to be unrememberable, so I just called them Joe, Bill, and Mike. I proposed to them that we docked up one of the outriggers and weigh anchor for Lacambe, about 40 miles away. This they vetoed immediately. It was the hurricane season, a time of variable winds and unpredicted calms. Too risky. Don't be in a hurry. Take it easy, they said. Itchy suggested we await the arrival of the copra boat in January. All agreed that it would be better to wait than venture out on the sea and made to adjourn the meeting. I said no and explained I hadn't seen my wife in 18 months and couldn't wait any longer. They listened as I unfolded a plan for signalling passing ships, provided there were passing ships. My sails, though chewed by the reef, were somewhat intact. So was my halyard and the copper block to heave the sail up with. I proposed we cut the top off one of the prominent coconut tree and rig my gear to it so we could raise and lower the sail as a signal if we sighted a ship. That afternoon, my dragged little mainsail was fluttering from the bold head of a conspicuous coconut palm. In the evening, the chief informed me that a ceremonial Yangona or native beer bust was to be held in my honour. I didn't know what he was talking about, but if it was going to be fun, I assured him I wouldn't miss it. Shortly after, I was seated on my throne at the apex of a circle of cross-legged men on the floor of the chief's koro. From where I sat in my rickety, vari-coloured chair made from pagan's timbers, I looked down on the whole assemblage, a sort of king of nothing. Several weak lanterns dimly bathed the dark room. The men were in a festive mood. Elbows on knees, they chatted pleasantly, waiting for the ceremonial to commence. All the village elders were present. Young boys, teenagers, were allowed to look on from the door. To the centre of the circle walked four village girls, who sat facing me. They were to perform a mekita, or dance in my honour as guest. Four more came in and sat down back to back with the others, facing away from me. Another sat just inside the doorway with the inevitable iron triangle and bar to beat time. The faces of all were decoratively smeared with white paste. Garlands of hibiscus fibre, dyed purple and entwined with flowers, hung about their necks. Their breasts, arms and legs glistened coppery with wally-wally. On their wrists, ankles and upper arms were bands of coconut frond and flowers. In their beautifully groomed bushy hair and behind their ears were flowers. In the right hand of each was a flower. The time-beater at the doorway started the ball rolling. The girls, facing away from me, sang one of the rich tribal songs and all clapped in unison. Those facing me sang with the others, at the same time waving the hands and arms gracefully in a pattern. The expressive arm and hand movements were telling a story I couldn't follow, but it was beautiful and sincere. What ensued was a dance sitting down, which is the way the Fijians do it. As the dance progressed, the girls changed places several times. The singing grew up to a high pitch and more expressive and picturesque movements came into the dance. In fact, by the time they finished, they had done everything possible to do sitting down, short of standing and dancing. I rose and applauded and insisted on shaking the hand of each performer as an appreciative gesture. Such enthusiasm prompted them to put the whole show on again. The next time, I merely smiled. Then came the Yangona. This comes with the title of Fijian alcoholism, without the imputation of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yangona is a native drink, the partaking of which hasn't the distasteful results that our own similar ceremonials involve. The drink is evidently healthful. It is enjoyed only by the men 
and then only on special occasions. It is prepared by pounding the kava root in a hollowed log stump and mixing the pulpy root with water by hand in a large shallow wooden bowl. The pulp is strained from the water through the fibres of the hibiscus plant, leaving the water brownish and spiked. The leader of the singers then comes in, sitting respectfully before the kava bowl. She claps twice as a traditional expression of reverence, and a coconut shell is filled from the bowl and handed her. This she then brings to me, the guest, who quaffs it off and passes the shell back. It is refilled and taken to the chief, and thence to every Tom, Dick and Harry, till the bowl is emptied. Then a new decoction is made up. While the drinks are being passed and while fresh bowls of the brew are being mixed, the men chatter and banter across the circle. Yangona has a taste that is indescribable, but there is nothing mysterious about its effect. It is heady, inducing a giddy drowsiness. I should have quit after my second round. By the tenth, I was all for singing Deep in the Heart of Texas and raising general hell with the boys. Shortly after, Itchy wisely decided it was time to take me home before the party got too rough. The next morning I had a hangover, which was nothing more than a semi-diaric condition. It left me a bit shaky at the knees. Among the healthful qualities of Yangona is its action as a physic. Una fed me lightly on breadfruit noodles cooked in coconut milk with vasua or clam. I washed it down with lemongrass tea and had a papaya to finish with. She scolded Itchy for leading me astray in that den of iniquity. That afternoon of the 5th of November was spectacular. Shortly after lunch, a cry rent the village. There was something on the horizon. A sail. Itchy and Mike came dashing in, overflowing with gibberish and pointing to seaward excitedly. I knew it was a ship from the cry of Lakamota from the beach and sought my walking stick. Itchy was impatient with my slow gait. He picked me up in his arms and ran across the village with me as though I were a stalk of bananas. Gion, one of his sons, brought my throne. Sitting on the beach, I could see the sail and part of the cabin of a copra schooner making down the coast. Mike and Joe were working the sail. When I said up, they hoisted it. When I said down, they hauled it in. The vessel moved along till she was a beam of us. Mike and Joe agitated the sail madly. I stood on my chair, waving my cane and shouting. Everybody was doing something to attract attention. We screamed, we jumped, we waved. The vessel moved serenely down the coast and out of sight. I felt empty. Everybody looked disappointed. But Una seemed pleased that the boat hadn't seen the signal and hadn't come for me. She came up and let me know that I wasn't Bula, strong, enough to leave the island. I concluded that there wasn't enough diversion in the sail alone to catch attention. Possibly it couldn't be seen from a great distance. Even if it could, it might not be recognised as a danger signal. I told the chief and suggested we build some brush piles on the beach to be lit next time we sighted a sail or funnel. He agreed. At his command, all the boys in sight hustled into the jungle. Soon, four impressive tinder heaps graced the beach. Itchy was dead set on giving me a shave and trimming my hair. He had been agitating to do it all week and each day I had stalled him. I dreaded this worse than tooth pulling. Many times I had seen the men shave themselves with cold water, laundry soap and razors honed on a chunk of grindstone. Itchy was determined to get to the bottom of my whiskers. I could delay no longer. My beard was five inches long and blonde as platinum from the constant touch of the sun. My hair had overgrown my ears and forehead and was well down toward my shoulders. 
It, too, had been breathed on from above and was streaked with blonde. It was all this blonde business behind the sun-browned face that had so startled the beachcombing children that day I had peered down on them from my eyrie in the rocks. Itchy had an old pair of dull scissors for the shearing. Bill, Joe and Mike oversaw the job. Hair flew and whiskers scraped. After an hour of manhandling and unforgettable misery, I was bold-faced and near bald-headed. Seeing myself just after being shaved was a jolt. It was a foreview of what I may be at 99. A skeleton of my real self peered back from the glass, wrinkled at the deep-sunk eyes, enlarged at the cheekbones and shallow in the cheeks, heavily veined over the forehead, bony at the jaw and throat, wide at the ears. From cheekbones to hairline was a swath of sunburned colour. Below was sallow flesh, long hidden by my beard. Chapter 25. A Sail there had been some talk over the last few days of an Ugavule hunt. Una told me that one had been planned for me. It would consist of a large party, Bill, Joe, Mike, Tukai and Suvi and all their family. We would leave next morning, early, to be gone for three days. I knew nothing about an Ugavule hunt, but I was raring to go. At daylight, I wobbled down to Itchy's outrigger and climbed aboard. Six other outriggers were assembled. Families and gear were aboard. Everybody was in festive mood. The village lined the strand to wave us away. My throne was lashed aboard and we shoved off. Itchy stood on the dancing bow, punting the thin, shallow hull along at lively speed with a long pole. Una stood on the stern, helping with the same man's job. Later, when we changed course and the wind hauled round to aft, two heavy coconut fronds were struck in the bow and the wind pushed against them, drove us along effortlessly. Una laid aside her pole and steered from the stern with a large paddle. The purpose of an Ugavule hunt is to mix work with pleasure and at the same time inject the quest for food. This became apparent as the hunt progressed. As we glided over the coral bottom, all eyes searched the coral shells for signs of life. Suddenly Itchy splashed overboard, spear in hand. Leaning over the side, I watched him jerk downward through six fathoms of water, overtaking a large sea turtle that had seen us and plunged. Itchy stopped in mid-water, hovering over the turtle. His muscles tensed, then rippled, and I could see he was jabbing viciously. Then he reached for the surface with long strokes, towing his kill behind. About two miles away from the village, we nosed into a flat depression on the rocky coast, it was fronted by a white beach and planted to coconut trees. The boats pulled in and threw out their stone anchors made fast to the boat by vines. Una went ashore to stew tea for my morning meal, for I still ate every three hours. Itchy carried his copper knife, burlap bags and axe ashore. Mike's wife brought me some cat's eyes, on the back of which grows a sweet-meated little animal you eat raw. I had them with kumalas, bananas and tea for my morning snack. The hunt was to take us right around the island. At each coconut patch, we were to stop and gather the copra or coconut meat. When the copra work was done, the women were to pitch in and comb the area in search of the ugavule. Then we would load the copra and the ugavules, if any, and proceed along the coast to the next open shore grown to coconut palms. The coconut palm is the basic commodity in native life. The meat and milk of the green nut are an important liquid and food of the diet. 
Later, when the husk has dried and the nut matured, a coconut cream for cooking is obtained as well as wali-wali or ointment for the skin. The husk is used for fires, for smoking the koro against mosquitoes and making senet or native rope. The dried meat of the mature nut is shredded and eaten or is sold or traded as copra, about the only source of income open to the native. The plaited fronds of the palm serve as building material for house roofs and walls, mattresses for the beds, baskets and fans. The bowl is used for uprights, cross beams and the ridge pole in the hut. When we made our first stop, the coconut harvest was on. At a bark from Itchy, the boys hurried off into the palm thicket carrying coarse jute bags. Each family worked separately and for itself. Itchy and Una had an edge with four sons in the field. The boys' job was to quest for the brown dried nuts and when their bag was filled to bring them in to Una. She, working with the axe, split each nut in halves with a stroke and dropped them near Itchy, seated close by. Itchy, with the double-edged copper knife in hand, twisted the white meat from the shell by a magic motion. It was tossed then in a pile and later sacked. Soon, the area was depleted of suitable coconuts. While the men sacked the harvest and loaded it on the outriggers, the women went deftly into the jungle in search of the ugavule. Searching out the ugavule is an extreme test of eyes and intimate knowledge of the denizen's habits. He lives in the rocks, burrows in the undergrowth, and is difficult to ferret out and subdue. Unfortunately, I was still too weak to follow into the jungle, so I missed seeing how the captures were made. In less than an hour, six monster crabs showed up amongst the huntresses, and so we moved on. The fronds, perched in the bow, caught the wind and pushed us off into the lagoon. One, two, Four, five, seven, nine fathoms of lucent water showed under the hull. A coral tip or a shell or a fish at that depth is as clear as in the hand. I like nothing better than lying on the outrigger deck, searching into the constant puzzle of the lagoon bottom. Vazuai, a piercing cry from Una. Before I could see her, she was gone. She had dived in. I wriggled around so I could see and watch her spiral downward through 50 feet of water, spear in hand. Her hair streamed behind. Her vivid Sulu flashed against slanting sun rays. She pulled up short, settled in slow motion on the ocean floor. Itchy spun the boat around. Una's objective was a giant Fiji clam. She had spied the open lip and dived on the split second. The clam blends with the coral as rattlers in the dust. Taking them from where they nestle in the coral can be dangerous. Itchy had lost his first wife in a tragic episode with the Vasua. She had hunted alone on the open reef, had thrust her hand into a partly open shell, and it had snapped on her, imprisoning her at the wrist as in a vice. And there she had perished, helpless before the rising tide. As Una prepared to approach the clam to spear him at a vital spot, Itchy poised himself. Spear in hand, he was ready to dive down to pry her free should any commotion indicate she was trapped. I leaned more closely to the water to see what Una would do and to see how she would do it. She eased over her prey and by a soft movement slipped her spear point to the shell edge. At this point a motion of water will warn the giant bivalve and he will slap his curving shell edges closed. A crucial moment. In a second she jerked. She thrust quickly and with a joggling motion she twisted violently. The powerful, vital muscle that clamps the lid shut was severed. 
Then she seemed to gather herself upward with long strokes and came to the outrigger to breathe. In a moment, she dived again. This time, Itchy stood poised anew with his spear. Una was still in danger. A shark might be lurking in the coral heads. Una floated onto the living coral floor, spread apart the valves of the clam and cut away its choice meats. The shell is thick and sometimes weighs hundreds of pounds. Una swam back with chunks of fat, white flesh and heaved them on deck. Next, we stopped at a larger grove farther along the northwest shore, where we lunched. We carried away 11 more ugavules, and that night our camp was pitched on the north point of the island on the shore of a small embayment. I slept on a mattress of pandana striplings in an open clearing of the grove. The stars were my ceiling, while the gentle roar of the tide on the distant reef dulled my senses. The next morning, we crowded our growing copper yield into the shallow draft outriggers, pushed off from under bending coconut palms growing over the water, and hauled down the uninviting windward shore. We made two stops in the morning, and one in the afternoon. Itchy and Bill conferred on whether we should attempt to make another inlet farther along down before dark. They decided yes, so we loaded up and cast off, heading southeast along the cliffy shore. Before we reached the spot, I could see it around the point ahead. The palm fronds showed over the cruel, jagged lava near where I had been cast up. We crept up to the point and threw our frail craft onto the race that swept past it and ran with a spurt into the open bay. There, on the exposed sand, was a sight I had never dreamed possible to see. My one-time jaunty little cutter, Pagan, lay washed up on the beach. Keel-deep in sand she was, battered and splintered by her trials, she had scraped over 200 yards of ungodly reef, floated a mile across the lagoon, and settled on the beach, straight and level, with her bow pointing out to sea. There is no logical explanation for it. Nothing I can think of can explain it. She sits there today, hopelessly denuded, wrecked beyond the wildest dream of repair. It is a heavy-hearted sight. That night, I walked over to her and rubbed her splintered stubs. Few boats have lived her thrilling life. Though her life was short under my hand, she lived it to the full and gave a measure of service. In our trials together, I had come to know my boat as a real person, and now I saw her bones captured by the sand. I felt a welling of deeper sentiment than one should feel over the riven kindlings of a hulk. I caressed her aged timbers, looked the last time over her naked frame, and walked away. By mid-morning, the following day, the open shores of Pagan's Cove, as I had named the miniature bay, were sufficiently hunted and cleared, and so we shoved off. It was from this point that Itchy had embarked the night of my rescue and groped through the dense jungle and over the jagged rock to me. We passed the sandy nook where the sea had thrown me up. Down a short way was the treacherous cove where I had lain the last day and night. Another mile and we pulled into the last inlet before reaching the village. The spot was too close to Loma Loma to have much copra and it yielded only three ugavules. Here, the bags of copra were unloaded and sprinkled over the flat rocks for drying in the sun. In a few days, they would be resacked and placed in special little huts near the village till the copra boat called in January. Before we departed, I noticed a new activity. The women brought long lengths of a brown vine onto the beach, all set to and cut it into 12-inch lengths. 
Then on a rock or log it was pounded into wisps and bound in small sheaths. Each outrigger took a number of the pulpy bundles and pushed off. We didn't continue down the shallow coast, but put off into the deeper lagoon. We hovered over the coral heads, watching the grottoes beneath where sea life teemed. Presently, something was seen in one of the black recesses of a coral peak. All craft hurried to the spot and anchored in a circle above it. Several heavy steel spears were cleared for action on each boat. The sheaves of pounded fibre were dipped for a long minute and pounded again on the outrigger prows. With these, the women swam down into the limpid water, depositing them at arm's reach in the dark openings. The men stood poised on the flat prows, spear in hand, tensed to dive. Evidently, the beaten vine exudes a substance which partly paralyzes, at the same time annoying the fish. Fish, ordinarily too quick to follow with the eye, drifted lackadaisically from the caverns. The men plunged spear first on the easy prey. In two hours, there was fish enough for the village. We filled out extra space with red, blue, green, brown, white and black fish, some of them four feet long. At dusk, we pulled back once more into the bay of Loma Loma. In the ketiketis, or baskets, were two dozen fish. Also, there were two turtles, a number of uraus, vasua, oysters, eels, turtle eggs and 37 ugavules. The village was festive. My buddy, Tupa, the chief, told me that next day there would be a village feast in my honour. That night, I felt infinitely stronger, something like my old self. The three-day outing had done it. Three days of the freshest air I had ever breathed, coupled with the rich meat of the ugavule and the life-sustaining coconut milk. The whole time I wore only a sulu. I lay hours in the sun, I strolled the beaches, or I napped, or I kidded with my friends, a proper combination of activities to restore health. I looked forward to the coming feast. The whole morning was consumed in preparation for it. First of all, the native ovens were made ready. These are ingenious devices for baking food in the ground. Broad holes, a dozen of them about two feet deep, were dug. In the bottoms, a bed of glowing coals were built up. Over the searing bed, a layer of round stones was placed. The food well wrapped in banana leaves for preservation, was placed on the hot stones and covered with sand. In three hours, it was uncovered and presto, the meat was so tender it fell from the bones. Two hefty pigs were slaughtered and committed to the ovens. Ten chickens were baked, a hundred pounds of fish, thirty ugavules, kumalas, and by the dozen as well, ajina, which bananas, cassava, a type of yam, mei, breadfruit, Uvi, sweet potato, everything edible, cookable and in season. Fruits such as eating bananas, papayas, mangoes, pineapple, passion fruit and others I neither knew nor could remember were in abundance. Young coconuts were stacked about to wash the feast down. On Tuvutha, a feast isn't a feast unless there is plenty left over. Palm fronds were cast side by side and end on end half the length of the grassy common in the village centre. The food was uncovered from the savoury ovens and crowded, steaming onto the palms. Within the reach of all was a portion of everything. We sat down, cross-legged, for now I was strong enough and had flesh enough over my bones to sit comfortably, before the unbelievable abundance. My place was that of the guest at the head of the table, 
Several lays of stained hibiscus fibre entwined with flowers were given me. In appreciation for the kindness and generosity of the whole village, I wore them about my neck, despite their discomfort. The chief nodded at me to begin. I dipped my fingers in the food within reach and all followed suit. The banquet was on. I ate of everything, as did every feaster. In the next hour, we made classic gourmands of ourselves, and we ate to completion, then chatted a while and ate again. I grew sick of the sight of food. The very thought of it nearly burst me. The Fijian loves a heavy eater. The more I ate, the more they beamed. The chief at last arose and gave a pained speech and sat down quickly. The pastor spoke, also the school teacher and my philosopher friend of the wistful face. I was called upon to tell my story, which I did to the uninhibited delight of all. The girls came forth and performed their gaudy sit-down dance. The chief stood and proclaimed a ceremonial Yangona to be held immediately in his hut, and the feast was over. I was in no condition for a stag party, remembering the effects of the last. To show the boys I could take it, I went, but after my second round begged off and headed for a night of full sleep. The next week was a hard one for me. I loved the island. I enjoyed being on it, but I longed to be on my way, to Mary. At least I wanted to get some word to her and my family that I was safe. On the island, I was caged and helpless. I spent my days in quiet desperation, hours I stood each day on the beach, searching past the thundering reef to the unbroken horizon. Every minute I hoped for a mast to appear. To kill time and ease my mind, I strolled endlessly through the settlement, stopping in practically every hut. I watched the women sitting in their lively social groups weaving intricate floor mats. I watched them beat out the Maasai of the mulberry tree for the decorative tapper cloth. I watched them weave baskets and fans from pandanus and palm leaves. I watched them prepare their foods, mother their children, make their homes. The women have certain tasks about the village which they are more or less expected to do. However, in the easy life of nature, nothing is definitely the work of one sex or the other. They carry water, collect firewood, assist in preparing the native gardens and in their upkeep. They fish with throwing nets in the lagoons and dive for vasua, oysters and uraos. They are the cooks, housekeepers and family launderers. The Fijians are the cleanest native people I have ever seen. They bathe and wash clothes tirelessly. They keep tidy homes and grounds. Men and women are equally fastidious about their hair, keeping it combed out in a neat frizz. The life of the Tavutha native is essentially cooperative, though some of it is communal. The gardens back in the jungle are individually owned and planted. The heads of families and their sons work them mostly. When the natives dig their foods from the ground, they replant shoots and roots immediately, so there is an unending food supply and growth. The richness of the soil requires neither fertilizer, irrigation nor ploughing, merely weeding and simple planting. These jungle gardens yield lavishly. Fruit groves, native trails, feasts and the coconut thickets are communal properties. The chief is responsible for them. If they require attention, he strolls through the village after dark, calling off names and designating chores. And that's that. House building and repairs are done after the fashion of the log rolling bees back in Texas. The neighbors all pitch in. The same for boat building. The old and infirm are easily provided for by the great abundance. Sickness, if any, is herbally treated. A doctor would grow rusty on this island. 
An average day of life in Loma Loma is something like this. Everyone hits the deck soon after daylight. Nothing much is done until about eight o'clock when the women serve up breakfast. It is a simple repast, usually kumalas, fish, boiled bananas, crabs, and fresh fruit. The women clean house, wash clothes, weave mats. The men sharpen spears or knives, repair the house or boat till about 11. Then they round up their sons and head into the bush for rations. They return about two, laden with baskets of fresh jungle produce carried on the ends of a pole swung across the shoulder. A medium-sized meal is partaken of. The rest of the afternoon is frittered away, maybe with a short fishing expedition or a nap or a social call or helping the neighbors. The inevitable bath is fitted in. The evening meal, just at dusk, is the main course of the day. This is the heavy meal. Although no Fiji meal is really heavy unless it might be for occasional pork or chicken, the dinner is more elaborately prepared and offers more variety than the earlier meals of the day. The evenings are spent sitting in doorways, watching the children at play or chatting with neighbors. About nine o'clock, everybody yawns heavily, lanterns go out, and night sounds prevail. In this atmosphere of balanced tempo, I fretted away my days, strolling the beach, eyes on the horizon. My ears were constantly on the alert for the cry that would go up if a sail should be sighted. My mind was in Sydney with Mary. I wondered what she was thinking. Had the long letter I left at Post Office Bay nearly four months before been picked up? If so, had she received it? Unknown to me, she had received the letter in early October, postmarked August from Guayaquil, but all she knew was that I had sailed from the Galapagos the last of July, bound westward. I had expected to arrive in Sydney aboard Pagan by the end of September, and here it was half through November, six weeks overdue. Mary's thoughts must have been very grim. A sudden cry went up from the huts on the beach. In a moment, it was resounding through the village. When I heard Lakomoto, I knew a sail was on the horizon, and I hobbled toward the beach. It was a sail, all right, advancing down the coast. The craft was a motor schooner with an auxiliary sail, and she appeared to be footing it fast. Itchy and Mike began hauling the sail up and down while Bill and Joe lit the four fires and fanned them. Suvi and Tukai ran to and fro, waving their fishnets. Una stood by, implacable and still. A chorus of shouts went up. Everybody else was in motion. Red flames broke from the stacks of tinder. Blue smoke spiralled upward. Every eye was on the sail, which continued on unperturbably. Twenty minutes passed. The sail altered not a jot. I felt the same sinking feeling I'd felt ten days before when we lost the other sail. More fuel was added to the fires. The sail dropped suddenly out of sight. I knew it couldn't have disappeared over the horizon so soon. I couldn't figure it out. Then I realized that the boat had seen our signal, had dropped the auxiliary sail, and was coming to investigate. Her bow swelled into view, and suddenly I was jumping more wildly than all the rest. A gang of us jumped on Itchy's outrigger and paddled out to pilot the newcomer through the reef. I made her out to be the lay a copra schooner of 45 feet. When we pulled alongside, I went immediately aboard. The captain, a gnarled old Fijian who had seen many years in the island trade, spoke no English, but the mate, a young Tongan, had a speaking acquaintanceship with it. In slowly spoken words, I explained my circumstances and asked him if he could take me off the island. He conferred with the old sea dog and turned to me saying yes. 
He explained that the boat was owned by Stockwell, an island trader and copra merchant from Vanuambalavu. They were out weighing copra and had two islands to visit before returning north. The ancient schooner rattled its ponderous anchor onto the sandy bottom off Loma Loma. In the friendly manner of the Fijis, the captain, mate and crew came off with me to stretch their legs. I walked promptly up to the hut, escorted by Itchy, Bill, Joe, Mike and Tupa, all looking glum. Una had proceeded as long before and had knowingly packed my few belongings in a battered chest given me by Itchy. She stood shaking her head, telling me not to go. My battered old blue suit was hanging ready for me by the door. I took it, stepped inside, unwrapped my Sulu and with Itchy's help slipped into the suit, my seedy white shirt and a clean pair of socks. I walked back into the arena of drawn faces. There was nothing to do but say goodbye and go quickly. The next few minutes were the hardest of my life. How does one say goodbye to the people who have saved his life and been the exemplars of kindness and generosity? What the natives saw was a simple handshake all round, but inside I was in turmoil. When I shook hands with Una, she was still shaking her head and saying I wasn't well enough to go. Everyone who had been so good to me was there. Itchy was looking down at his feet and so was Tupa, Bill, Joe and Mike were standing apart. The pastor, the school teacher and my wistful philosopher friend looked straight into my eyes and smiled brave smiles. Tukai and Suvi were looking downcast. The families of all stood close around, silent. I felt as though I were doing wrong by leaving them, so I hurried. I waved goodbye and hopped into the dinghy. At the last minute, Itchy jumped in, determined to stay to the last. An outrigger came out for him. More goodbyes were said, more handshakes and the anchor was dragged aboard. With the engine roaring and the old boat trembling, we made for the opening in the reef. Itchy's outrigger followed us to the open sea and that was the last I saw of Loma Loma. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to SpartanOceanRacing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds, and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.